Well, open up your Bibles or look in your bulletins at Philippians 4, um, verses 2 through 9. We have just two more sermons left in our series titled, Growing with Joy. During Advent season, we celebrate the birth of our wonderful counselor, Prince of Peace. The Hebrew word that we use to translate, uh, that we translate with peace is the word shalom. You know, it means far more than the absence of conflict. It also includes this notion of, a, of a, the presence of flourishing of people on earth. Oh, that we would be a people of flourishing. Isn't it true, though, as we look at our lives, we can be, they can be far from peaceful and flourishing? Instead of peace, we have conflicts. Instead of peace, we have anxiety. Instead of, instead of uh, flourishing, we have failures. Thankfully, though, this morning, Paul points us upward to our Heavenly Father, the God of peace, so that we may experience his shalom, his peace. Philippians 2, verse, uh, 4, verses 2 through 9. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, these words are true, uh, and they lend us great encouragement this morning. We um, find ourselves as human beings on this beautiful but broken planet um, to be a people who lack shalom. We lack peace. Things of this world uh, just cloud our minds. We're full of conflict and envy, and um, we need your um, help with this. So by your Holy Spirit, enliven our hearts to this truth that we just read. Press it deep within. May we trust you our God of peace, and draw near to you to experience your peace, we pray. Amen. You know, this past week we lost a hero and a cultural icon, John Glenn. He was a distinguished fighter pilot in World War II and in the Korean conflict. But he's perhaps better known for being one of the Mercury Seven who had the right stuff. He was the first American to orbit the Earth. And he was known to be cool under pressure. When his Friendship 7 Atlas rocket launched from the Earth, Glenn's heartbeat was recorded. The maximum heart rate, 110 beats per minute. 110. I, look, I was playing drums over here. I looked at my Fitbit. I was at 114, right? <laughs> Just 
just thinking about sitting on the top of a rocket, you know, causes my heart beat to go to 180. And did you know that as he entered that rocket ship, Glenn knew that with the previous 20 launches of that series of rocket, 45% ended, exploded in catastrophic failure. We'd all like to be cool under pressure like John Glenn. While none of us have the daunting challenge of sitting atop spaceships, our lives at times can feel as if we're sitting atop a giant, uncontrollable rocket. It's true, isn't it? Certainly all of us here have battles with worry and doubt. Certainly all of us here feel at times that this inner peace of the soul is hard to come by. We worry, we become anxious. And at far less threatening circumstances than sitting atop 627,000 pounds of rocket fuel with a 45% failure rate. And you know, the Philippians had much more to worry about than we did too. They were suffering strong persecution from their Greco-Roman neighbors who worshipped the emperor as lord and savior. And so Paul, with love and concern, points the Philippians and he points us to the God of peace who gives us the peace of God. Oh, that we would take to heart what Paul has to teach us here. That, that God's desire is that his children would experience his peace. The body of Christ is to experience the peace of God. That's what we're going to look at here this morning. We're going to look at it in three areas. The body of Christ is to experience the peace of God relationally within the body as trials and difficulties come our way and as we honor God in our thoughts and practices. First, the body of Christ is to experience the peace of God relationally within the body. The big idea here is this. If we are to experience peace As the body of Christ, there must be peace in the body. I recently heard from a fellow pastor about a man he ran into while he was out shopping. He told of this college professor who used to be deeply involved in in another church, but the church went through a horrendous conflict, and the church ended up splitting into two churches. And he ended up leaving the church and Christianity for good. What was the source of conflict that caused this church to fight tooth and nail? The members cannot agree over whether the new exterior should be made of wood or brick. Now I'm sure if you were to send a investigative reporter after the church split, you would find similar responses on both sides. The people from the must-be-brick group would say, you know, I'm sorry it turned out this way. We reasoned as best we could with these people. We even reminded them that the big bad wolf was able to huff and puff and blow down the wood house, but they just wouldn't listen. And then the must-be-wood group would feign regret and at the end feel justified for their actions A lot was on the line, after all. Isn't it true that when we experience conflict, we experience a falling out in a relationship, typically what is it that we do? We justify ourselves. 
And at the end of justifying ourselves, we create such a bulletproof case of how there just wasn't any other way. Well, that might be how the unbelieving world operates, but it's not to be the way of those who belong to Christ. Earlier, Paul admonished in this same letter to the Philippian church that in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It doesn't mean that you agree, but it does mean that you value and esteem the person as someone who's made in God's image and therefore deserving of your loving kindness. How is it possible that we can even begin to count others more significantly? If you remember, Paul said, Paul pointed the Philippians to Christ. Look to Christ. See how he humbled himself. How, how he suffered even to the point of death. Our Savior, who is God in the flesh that we celebrate this time of year, considers us sinners more significant than himself. And he gave his life for us. You know, he did not agree with how we'd been acting. <laughs> But thank God he esteemed us nonetheless. The Son of God gave his life so that we are now sons and daughters of the God of peace. Now back to our text. How would you like to have yourself named in the Bible? Remember earlier, um, Paul, Paul writes about Timothy and Epaphroditus, and he extolled their great character. To be named in the Bible would be a pretty cool thing, wouldn't it? Maybe not. Not if your names are Yodia and Syntyche. Paul singles out these two ladies and he entreats them to agree. Now, to entreat, it's a pretty strong word. Paul is appealing to them. He's saying, pretty please, with the cherry on top, agree. Agree. But agree how? He says, agree in the Lord. What does it mean to agree in the Lord? Not so much that you agree who the Lord is, although that is important. No, Paul is reminding them that they both are in the Lord, <laughs> that they belong to his, his body. They both belong to Christ. These are both members of the body, the church. These are not unbelievers. Paul says that their names are written in the book of life. All who trust in Christ, their names are written in the Book of Life. Is your name written there? Understand, Paul loves these women very much. In verse 3, he points out that these women labored side by side with Paul in the gospel. In Acts chapter 16, you can see how this church began. There were some women who used to gather on the Sabbath by the river for prayer. God-fearing women, Gentiles. And Paul went and met with them and shared the gospel with them. Uh, Lydia, no doubt Yodia and Syntyche, uh, became followers of Christ in that moment. Paul says, these women have been faithful companions of mine and faithful servants of, alongside of me in the gospel. This church came about because of the faithfulness of Yodia and Syntyche. There's much to commend here. But there's a rift in their relationship. Why is there a rift? We don't know. Paul doesn't say why. What we do know is what Paul is trying to get across to all Christians. We are to agree in the Lord. When you find yourself at odds with another Christian's views or opinions, or even if you've had your feelings hurt, here is what you are to do. Worry less about who is right and who is wrong, and instead ask, what does it mean for us as a community 
to have the mind of Christ together? What does it look like for me to to live in gospel relationship with the other Christians, with the glory of Christ as our highest priority? This is hard. But it has to be as a goal of our church to agree in the Lord. It's hard, and so Paul also points out a need for help. Isn't it true that when we harbor resentment, and even when we know we need to make peace with someone, that first step is often what? Really hard. (laughs) That's why Paul enlists the help of a third person to mediate. Look at verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Who is the true companion? We don't know his or her name. But no doubt the people in Philippi would have known who Paul was referring to. Paul is asking others in the church to work to bring the peace of God into these two women's lives again. I say again because Christians who are angry at other Christians do not have peace. They're agitated. They're spiteful. They're living by the flesh, not the spirit. But where there is reconciliation, there is peace and there is joy. Paul gets to that in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, when we hear the word rejoice, what often comes to our minds? Maybe I can't speak for you, but for me, I often often think of singing rejoicing songs in in a worship service. But isn't it true? Sometimes you can be singing a rejoicing song in a worship service and your heart is not even close to being joyful. N.T. Wright expands our definition of rejoicing when he translates this verse. Here's how he translates it. He says, celebrate joyfully in the Lord all the time. I say it again, celebrate. Celebrate the Lord. Let me ask you, when you celebrate all that Christ has done for you, does it not change you? Makes you more humble, more loving, more patient. Makes you more willing to consider others more important than yourself, right? And as verse 5 presents, it makes us to be reasonable to all. Um, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Greek word we translate reasonableness can also, it's a kind of a tough one to pin down. It can also be translated with the word gentleness. Ancient Greek writers used it to refer to gods and how they demonstrated gentle forbearance towards others. And we all know what it's like to interact with, a, with an unreasonable teacher or a boss. They won't listen or adjust no matter what you say. But when you and I live as celebrators of the Lord, it makes us to be reasonable, to bear with others in gentleness. What a wonderful thought. Now we conclude this first section by looking at a healthy motivation. Paul writes, agree in the Lord, celebrate the Lord together, be kind and reasonable with each other, because the Lord could walk through the door at any moment. Where do we see that? 
Verse 5 ends with the indicative. The Lord is at hand. Now, on the one hand, Jesus is at hand in the sense that he's always present with his people uh, in the Holy Spirit. But Paul here has more of an eschatological uh, at hand in mind. Uh, the term eschatological, don't let it scare you, but it's a good term to know. Uh, it refers to the age to come, the eschaton, uh, things that concern that age when that day when Christ returns at his second coming, then he will usher in a perfect peace. And the God of peace will bring heaven to earth. He will dwell with us. Now, that could be any day. That could be tomorrow. That could be today. Have you ever walked into a room to find a married couple arguing? It's kind of awkward, isn't it, for both parties, right? Typically what happens... The couple who's arguing, they kind of look around, and they kind of sheepishly shut up, and then, you know, they have that look on their face like, uh-oh, busted, right? Here it says, if Paul is saying, Yodia and Syntyche, the Lord could come today. And when he arrives, do you really want him to find you sulking in a pity party? How does that thought challenge you here today? Grace Church, may we be reminded that since we belong to the, to the Lord, to his body, um, that we must agree in the Lord. The important thing isn't whether we get our wood or our brick. The important thing is that Christ so captures our hearts and our minds that we set aside our ambitions so that Christ may be exalted in all that we do. If we were to experience peace as the body of Christ, We must have peace in the body. Next point is this. The body of Christ is to experience the peace of God as trials and difficulties come our way. The big idea here is this. Because our Heavenly Father is the God of peace, we are to draw near to Him and to experience His peace instead of our anxiety. We are an anxious and worried-filled nation. Anxiety disorders affect over 40 million adults in America. That's 18% of our population. With this in mind, how appropriate today are Jesus' words that Danny read earlier from Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about the body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and, and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Uh, They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your, what, heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? I think we all know this, like, intellectually. But experientially, we're like, can I just give worry one more try? (laughs) There's a whole lot of worrying going on back then and now, outside the church and inside the church. Let me ask you, are you prone to worry? What are the things that cause you to stress out? What are the things that keep you awake at night? John Sanderson, in his book, Fruit of the Spirit, says, Anxiety is the preoccupation with things of lesser importance. Check this out. In the false confidence 
that if they were well cared for, life will move smoothly along. Preoccupation with work, with finding a spouse, with paying bills. Sanderson calls anxiety a weed. Because like all other spiritual weeds, it is practical atheism. Does that make sense? It, it counts some things more important than God and seeks to derive security from these things rather than God himself. You know, the unbelieving world around us employs all sorts of means to mollify their anxious minds. Some take the mind-over-matter approach, right? To quote Hamlet, there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Yeah, right. Tell that to the parents of a child who's just, five-year-old, just diagnosed with leukemia. And still, we're told by our daytime TV prophets and prophetesses just to unleash the power of positivity, harness the glorious inner energy in you. And so rather than looking to God, people put their trust in positive thinking. I hope you see that the I think I can, I think I can approach to life only gets you so far. It will completely break down when your so-called manageable life collapses in on you. So Christian, what are you to do? when you find yourself becoming anxious. Paul here presents us with not only the, the best option, but also the only solution. He says, don't worry, pray instead. Don't worry, pray instead. Now, Paul isn't saying that the Philippians didn't have anything to worry about. No, they got lots to worry about. They're being persecuted. Others uh, experiencing division within the congregation. There's lots of reasons why they could worry And so Paul doesn't say don't worry because their circumstances are good. He tells them don't worry because they've got a God who's in charge and who loves them and they can pray to him. You know, worry is a thing that we do when we're out of control. We do it to try to make us feel more in control of a situation. And the ineffective thing about worry is it really doesn't do a single thing except depress you and discourage those around you. So the Apostle Paul here says that there's a solution. Instead of worrying, pray to the one who is every bit in control of your situation because the God of peace loves you and he'll take care of you. God gives us a huge promise in the good times and in the bad. If we come to God in prayer, if we come, do you see what the text is? If we come thankful for who God is and for his love for us, if we would but just let him know our needs, our supplications, if we let our requests be made known to God, what is it that he gives us? Does he give us a quick exit from our circumstances? Does he numb our minds to the hardships we're in? No, he gives us something far better. He gives us his peace. And not just any old peace. Verse 7, Paul says that we receive the peace of God. In the last part of verse 9, we read that 
the God of peace will be with you. God is a God of peace. When through Christ you draw near to the God of peace, he gives you his peace, the peace of God. Let me ask you, do you think God is up in heaven biting his nails? Do you think he's wringing his hands as to what he's going to do to to fix the plight of sinful mankind? Do you think he paces back and forth, cowering in fear? Do you think he has a hard time falling asleep at night? No, God is at perfect peace. And from his vantage point, he sees all things, even the circumstances that you are in, and he sees from the beginning of time to the end of time. He knows exactly um, how he's going to bring everything about and to bring the universe to full healing and shalom, including, including you, if you are his child. And so in verse 7, Paul says, The children of God have the blessing of the God of peace, giving peace to his children. And how does he describe this peace? Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, the peace of God is a peace that, of, that comes from God that surpasses all understanding. What does he mean by that? A couple things. One is the peace of God passes all understanding in that it's, it's beyond our comprehension. You know, this divine peace, it just kind of blows our mind. We can't even figure it out, right? But also, I think even more importantly, the peace of God surpasses our understanding in that it come, when it comes to us, it defies logic, right? Some of you have experienced this, and most of you, all of you, I feel like if you're in the Lord, there's been a time in your life, if not many, where you've experienced this peace that seems to come out of nowhere, that there's no explanation for. Like a Christian is laid off, and she draws near to God, and, and it, though it makes no sense to her co-workers, she knows that God is in control and that he will care for her, and so she experiences peace despite her circumstances. She has joy in the midst of of difficulty, and she celebrates the Lord. I really like what Paul says about this peace of God that passes, surpasses all understanding. He goes on to say this, that the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. My great-grandmother, Josephine Middlecoff, lived in the Wild West in the middle of the 1800s. She became friends with famous characters like Wyatt Earp and Buffalo Bill Cody and Wild Bill Hickok. She she hung out with them at Tommy Drum's Saloon. I've got a billiard ball from Tommy Drum's Saloon in Hayes, Kansas. Now, why did she settle in Hayes, Kansas? I don't know. But, I mean, if you're going out west, um, you want to settle someplace where there's going to be some sense of security watching over you. And in Hayes, at that time, had Fort Hayes. It was an army outpost, a garrison for the U.S. Cavalry. See, if you settle in the wild, wild west, it would be wise to settle near a garrison. The sentries go out and they watch over you to see how you're doing, to care for you, to protect for you, and provide security for you. Paul says in a similar way, the peace of God acts as a sentry over our hearts and minds. Like a garrison over and around us, God's peace guards us. You know, I think a lot of Christians 
live fearful, fretful lives. Why? Because in times of trouble, instead of running to God in prayer, we choose to worry and try to fix the problem. I think in the back of our minds, there's this notion that we know in Scripture that that God allows us to experience hardships, and we don't like that. We want to extricate ourselves from that. And, um, And then we start worrying, and we try our best. Sometimes, though, it's like climbing out of a hole of sand. But consider this crazy thought. Maybe, just maybe, God has you in this difficult circumstance so that you would come to him and experience the peace of God that is garrisoning your heart and your mind. The body of Christ has experienced the peace of God as trials come our way. Our Heavenly Father is the God of peace. So we're to draw near to him to experience his peace instead of our anxiety. Lastly, the body of Christ is to experience the peace of God as we honor him in thought and practice. The big idea here is this. God gives you his peace. But his peace is not the end. It's a means to an end. God gives us his peace so that our minds would be freed from anxiety, so that we may ponder things that honor Christ, and that we would put into practice these ways that bring him glory. First, let's look at the pondering. In verse 8, Paul lists out eight virtues that we're all to think about. Now, commentators point out how these are all Hellenistic words. Uh, you really, they're really not found all that much in the Bible. The closest resemblance would be James in his letter. There's some overlap there. Why would Paul list virtues from the Greco-Roman world? Because they're good virtues. You know, some people have this view of Christianity that it's a religion that spurs all things that aren't explicitly Christian in origin. And you know, some Christians think that way, but this isn't to be the case. Paul shows us that we shouldn't be surprised when people who are far from God affirm godly virtues. How can this be? Well, every human being is made in God's image. That image, yes, it's tarnished by the fall, but God's image is still there. And so it's no surprise that even atheists affirm truth and honor and justice and and purity. The important thing for us this morning isn't the origin of the list, but the content and the command. The content are noble virtues. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. I think he's like figuring out, what else can I write? If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise. Remember earlier Paul said to the Philippians, you're to have the mind of Christ. What does these virtues remind you of? The mind of Christ. Would these not be things that that were perfectly flooding our Savior's mind as he walked this earth? That's the content. These are wonderful things. Paul's commands at the end of verse 8. Think about these things. Why would Paul say that? Because when you pray to the God of peace, entrusting him with your cares and your concerns, you are now free to think about other things. Other things. 
And what would be good to think about? Some other hardship looming on the horizon? Some other bill you're not sure quite how to pay? No, Paul says, how about thinking about things that will make you more Christ-like? After giving God your anxious thoughts, fill your mind with virtuous thoughts. And as we live in the already not yet, awaiting the Lord who is at hand, it is critical that our minds are filled with what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. Paul says, not just ponder these God-honoring thoughts, but that we would put them into practice. Understand this, Grace Church. We are the body of Christ in a world that desperately needs Christ, and doesn't even know it. So we must take what we have learned and received and seen and heard in Paul and in other mentors in our Christian life. And we are to what? Practice these things. When Paul says practice, he has in mind like the practice of a, of a doctor or a lawyer. A practicing doctor means she is using the medical skills, the stuff in her head that she was trained with and in putting them to good use in the community. Here's the point we need to embrace. The peace of God is an enabling peace. It frees us from anxiety so that we may put into practice the mind of Christ. You know, John Glenn and the rest of those Mercury astronauts were said to have the right stuff, the mental and physical right stuff to sit atop rockets without worry. In many ways, we're to admire them, to look up to them. But hopefully this morning we've seen that in Christ, we have uh, all the better right stuff for living faithfully as followers of him. Though we aren't easily set at peace, though we tend to quarrel with those that we should instead agree with in the Lord, though we tend to worry and fret, though we tend to set our minds on trouble, not virtues, we should be encouraged There is a right stuff that isn't from earth, but is from heaven. God above knows our weaknesses. He knows our frailties. He knows how we set our hearts on hopes and dreams in this world only to worry and have them broken. But the God of peace has entered into our horrible circumstances. We celebrate at this Advent season. God sent his son to be near us. He died in our place, bringing us back to the peace of God. And you know, there's no longer any barrier between us and God if we have Christ as our advocate. And now understand this. Please picture this in your mind. Your heavenly Father does want you to draw near to Him. It's in His character to be a loving Father to His children. And so we need to be reminded. He wants us to know that he is in control. And though he's not promised to take us out of our troubles, at least not yet, he will meet us in the midst of our troubles with something far more helpful than anything we can muster up. The God of peace gives us the peace of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that you love us like this, that your peace is like a garrison um, standing sentry watch 
over our hearts and our minds. May we really believe those words, and may we put into practice the reality of being your children um, to give you our anxious thoughts so that you may give us your peace. Work in us today, this afternoon, and throughout this week to embrace this truth, we pray. Amen.